0: It is March, 1837, and the good Reverend Herbert Beaver is already bitching about those goddamn Americans. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, A survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of orhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click
1: Donate. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of Kick-Ass Oregon History, When Oregon Was British. This is a dual-purpose podcast. First, this broadcast is the typical lively straight-shit podcast you've come to expect from us. Listen to it at home or on your daily naked bike commute or tuning out the tweakers on the number 12 bus ride. But one of the other things we do at Kick-Ass Oregon History, besides arousing your ear hole, is conducting entertaining historical walking and bus tours of the Beaver State. You can check out a schedule of our upcoming tours and purchase tickets at orhistory.com. So, we also decided to release this podcast as a self-guided tour of one of the Pacific Northwest's greatest historical treasures, the National Park Service's Fort Vancouver, located in the Couve, dude. So head across the river, slip an Oregon microbrew or craft bourbon in your jacket pocket, and join us on our kick-ass tour of Fort Vancouver when Oregon was British. Ladies and gentlemen, ask kickers all, the ghost host of Kick-Ass Oregon history, Mr. Andy Lindbergh.
0: Next on our self-guided tour, we will move on to the trade store. Most of the furs entered the fort due to the endeavors of the fur brigades, which we will address at length later. Some fur did come to the trade store, and as most of the people who brought furs here to trade were Native Americans, we wanted to spend a little time to discuss just a slice of the effects the trade had upon them. Period descriptions of the Native Americans along the Columbia River are problematic, Many are filled with blatantly racist opinions and views, a stereotype that was acceptable for the era. The Chinookian people had an agreeable climate and a very high standard of living due to the abundance of valuable natural resources, ironically, the same resources that the men of the Hudson's Bay Company came to exploit. Due to the many salmon, deer, and forageable wild plants, these gifts allowed the Chinookians more leisure time than other native peoples. Supplying a village for the winter with protein was often easy, for the rivers were so full of fish, an early observer wrote that you could walk across on their backs. Early and many trade opportunities turned these people into shrewd bargainers, and increase their material wealth with European manufactured goods. To many of European pedigree, these native peoples seemed lazy and slothful. Speaking of the Indians, the Reverend Beaver said in November of 1836, Their numbers have been of late years much thinned by disease. Their twibes are numerous, much scattered and speak different languages there is however one language the chinook which is partially understood by nearly the whole but i much fear were i ever to become a master of this language which would be no very difficult task as far at least as foreigners usually understand it that it is too defective for the conveyance of Christian ideas. Rampant diseases overtook many of the native populations. Almost from first contact with the pink people in the late 18th century on, Native Americans were dying from smallpox, measles, tuberculosis, and, quote, intermittent fever, end quote an outbreak that was particularly deadly to the native populations around the Columbia River in 1830. Modern medicine has hypothesized that intermittent fever may have been malaria unknowingly brought from a tropical zone in the bilges of a Hudson's Bay company supply ship. Others have speculated that a global pandemic influenza may have been responsible based on reports of the same type of illness in China Russia and Western Europe in 1829 and 1830. No matter what the reason of the outbreak, the effects were devastating upon the native peoples. Dr. Tolmy took time to pen in May of 1833 that he had paddled along the right bank and entered Jolfi River. On the lower bank and just opposite to Coffin Island is the side of an Indian village which a few years ago contained two or three hundred inhabitants, but at present only its superior verdure distinguished the spot from the surrounding country. Intermittent fever, which had almost depopulated Columbia River of the Aborigines, here committed its fullest ravages and nearly exterminated the
2: villagers, the few survivors, deserting a spot where pestilence, "...seemed most terribly to wreak its vengeance."
0: Governor Simpson wrote nearly a decade later, in a reflective or even nostalgic mood, that it seemed that, "...when I descended the Cowlitz in 1828, there was a large population along its banks. But since then, the intermittent fever, which commenced its ravages in the following year, had left but few to mourn those that fell." During the whole of our day's course, till we came upon a small camp in the evening, the shores were silent and solitary, the deserted villages forming melancholy moments of the generation that had passed away. Reverend Beaver wrote in March of 1838 that, The smallpox, which I told you was raging to the northward, has ceased but not before it made a dreadful havoc among the Indians, of whom it took off one in three who were attacked. This may have been a conservative estimate on the good reverend's part. With just a few exceptions, all of the women at Fort Vancouver and the village during the 1830s and early 40s were Native American. Dr. Elijah White observed that, it is customary for the members of the party to take unto themselves Indian wives. It is their policy considered by them necessary to conciliate the goodwill of the tribes. The officers set the example and have ever encouraged the men to do it, each taking to be his wife the daughter of a chief whose grade corresponds with his own. For instance, Governor McLaughlin, Mr James Douglas, Holding the highest offices in the company, selected the daughters of the first chiefs of the most important tribes in the country. The contributions the native peoples gave to the fur trade, and indeed the harrowing sacrifices their cultures endured, cannot be overemphasized. Some people seem so obsessed
2: with the morning, get up early just to watch the sunrise. Some people like it more when there's fire in the sky Worship the sun when it's high
1: Some people go for those sultry evenings Sipping cocktails in the blue, red and gray But I
2: like every minute of the day
0: Please make your way to the I Fur like Warehouse, where we will tackle the immemorial question the why we are here of the fort vancouver experience this entire infrastructure all of these personalities everything you see around you the legacy created was built around one goal one product one physical item the vanity of men who wanted a fancy fucking hat they say a suntan never fails
2: I know a man who works the night shift He's lucky to get a job in something
1: Please take a moment to recall our beloved president, Abraham Lincoln. Immediately, his stovepipe hat comes to mind. This is one type of a beaver fur hat. A fashion accoutrement of the powerful and the wealthy, this stylish headwear was the driving force of the fur trade. Without this jaunty cap, it is reasonable to assume that none of the site that you are on today would be here, and it's also reasonable to assume that the history of Oregon would be very very different. A quite involved process was required to craft these beaver hats of high society. The beaver's coarse guard hairs would be carefully cut and shaved off with a knife, leaving the soft beaver wool on the hide. Using a nitrate of mercury, the pelt would be rubbed to increase the matting ability of the fur, often causing the artisan to become, air quote, mad as a hatter, in short, insane from mercury poisoning. The process continued for many more steps, many more months, until a beaver hat was finally produced. Due to the procedure, the labor involved, the skill, and even the artistry, these hats were quite expensive products. So we
0: move on to try to answer a question. And that question is, where is the Hatter's Hairy Beaver from? David Douglas has been attributed as having said, The Hudson's Bay Company is simply a mercenary corporation. There is not an officer in it with a soul above a beaver's skin. And indeed, that is how Governor Simpson wanted it. He made orders to trap every beaver possible, every single one to make the Pacific Northwest a desert of beaver pelts to scorch the earth of the rodent. Part of the justification was, of course, to enrich the Hudson's Bay Company. But again, it is important to remember the strategic role the company played for Britain. Taking away the resources of the beaver would also greatly affect American interests in the region. Very few seem to have any qualms with this policy. Dr. McLaughlin certainly does not seem to have expressed any regret over this directive. However, Peter Skeen Ogden, chief trader and head of the Snake River Campaign, did journal in 1829 that It is scarcely credible what a destruction of beaver by trapping there has been at this season. Within the last few days, upwards of fifty females have been taken, and on average, each with four young ready to litter. Did not we hold this country by so slight a tenure, it would be most to our interest to trap only in the fall, and by this mode, it will take many years
2: to ruin it.
1: The fur trading expeditions were referred to as fur brigades and did indeed resemble a military organization, or at least to some degree. Composed of up to 75 men with upwards of 350 horses, the brigades attempted to exercise military discipline with watches and defensive strategies in case of attack, but in other ways it seemed to be too motley of an arrangement to consider disciplined, for often the hunters would bring their wives and children in tow. Now, Fort Vancouver received furs from the Northern Brigades, today's Canada and Fraser River, the Eastern Mountain Brigades, which would be Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, and from the Southern Mountain Brigades, from the Sacramento, the Snake, and the Salt Lake regions. Many of these furs were funneled through a complex network of trading outposts, such as Kamloops, Alexandria, Spokane House, or Fort Nez Perce. The beaver trade, by its very nature, tended to attract
0: vagabonds, brigands, and ruffians. Governor Simpson called one of Ogden's brigades, The very scum of the country, and generally outcasts from the service for misconduct, the most unruly and troublesome gang to deal with in this, or perhaps, any other part of the world. Elijah White, describing a southern mountain brigade, possibly summed up the enterprise most succinctly when he stated that they start in the spring for California, carrying with them merchandise and English goods for barter with the natives, and return laden with furs, principally of the beaver and otter. In an account of a group leaving the fort on March twenty-second, 1828, an inventory of the trade items and provisions from Boat number two lists 100 pounds of flour, one keg of beads, one case of guns, four kegs of potatoes, two kegs of beef and pork, one keg of biscuit, a keg each of butter and salt, four bags of corn and peas, one bag of pemmican, one case of muskets, one roll tobacco, and one sugar. Danger was ever present for those in the fur brigade. A passage from Edward Ermattinger's journal on May 24th, 1828
2: says, Fine weather. Continued our voyage at daylight. Put ashore to breakfast at half past 8 a.m. people go off hunting but fall in with no animals. Start again around 11 a.m. and are only able to proceed about two miles when the wind, being too strong ahead, we put ashore where some fresh tracks being observed another party are sent off hunting but return unsuccessful. Toward evening, two young moose take to the river just above our camp and are both killed by some of the half-breeds. Wind, having abated before sunset, push off and make a short distance. Shortly after starting, a large grizzly bear was wounded by Mr. Rowland, and notwithstanding a large ball passed through his body and knocked him down, he escaped for some distance. A party pursued and were tracking him by his blood, when a rustling in the branches pointed out the spot where he had crouched. All the guns were cocked, ready to pour a volley upon him, but before the party had time to look about them, he sprang through the thicket with a dreadful crash, seized one of the men with his teeth, bit him in many parts of the body. He also bestowed a pat on the back of a second, tore his shirt, and marked him besides, making an attempt at a third. A dog, which happened to pass at the time, drew the Bruins' attention toward him, and prevented his doing more mischief to the people and also gave an opportunity of firing at him, which could not well be done while he had a man in his possession for fear of shooting the wrong object. Dog got only one of his thighs bitten and the bear was killed after having received at least a half dozen balls. Camp for the night.
0: As beaver is a rodent that spends much of its time in water, so, too, were the trappers. Constantly wet, often in frigid and icy streams and rivers, these men would set their traps near the bank of the watercourse. The trapper would scent the trap by baiting a nearby stick or branch with castoreum, an excretion which comes from a beaver's gland a trapper may have had their own secret blend, mixing cloves or other spices to pique the beaver's interest. A nosy little fucker, the beaver would investigate, tripping the trap on its leg, and then, diving for the safety of deeper water, the beast would usually drown. The trapper, or more often his wife or children, would then skin the beaver and treat the hide, often with brain or urine and would stretch the pelt onto a round made from branches, often willow. The beaver pelt was then referred to as a beaver dollar, and a good quality pelt was a made beaver. Back at the forts, tokens were issued to Indians who came to the trade store in increments of one made beaver. These tokens could then be used to purchase trade goods, such as beads, hatchets, pots, or guns. This life they chose was hard on trappers, and it was quite rare that any of the young men would survive to be old men. Extreme elements, starvation, attacks by hostile Indians or treacherous fellow trappers, an accident in the woods, any of these threats were in abundance in a voyager's day-to-day life. Often, beaver was the only meat available and beaver fever could result from this beggarly repast. This condition was caused from the beaver eating water hemlock, a plant poisonous to humans, and the effects would be passed on to the diner through the beaver's flesh. Ogden noted that of the 75 men who accompanied him in 1824, only one remained alive five years later. As Ogden wrote, It is certainly a most horrid life. Without exaggeration, man in this country is deprived of every comfort that can tend to make existence desirable. In May of 1825, for example, it has been recorded that Ogden's Snake River Brigade headed towards Fort Vancouver at the completion of their expedition with nearly 10,000 beaver pelts. Another brigade brought in 3,188 beaver pelts in November of 1825. But the forts and trading houses were a long way away from the brigade in the field, and the hides still had to be conveyed to Fort Vancouver. The pelts would be compressed in 88-pound bundles and would be run downstream in bateaux, flat-bottom and shallow draft boats up to 50 or more feet in length. As they came downstream, they would be joined by other craft into a motley flotilla of sorts. As they neared Fort Vancouver, the songs they sung, such as A La Clairefontaine" or perhaps A Highlander on the Bagpipes, could be heard from quite a distance away. A period description notes, A more picturesque set of fellows I never saw. They were all dressed out in light blue capotes and corduroy trousers, which they tied at the knee with beadwork gaiters. moose skin moccasins cased their feet, and their brawny, sunburnt necks were bare. A scarlet belt encircled the waist of each, and while some wore hats with gaudy feathers, others had their heads adorned with caps and bonnets, surrounded with gold and silver tinsel and cords. A few, however, despising coats traveled in blue and white striped shirts and trusted to their thickly matted hair to guard them against sun and rain. wrote of these brigades in a much less romanticized way when he penned that they resembled a hideous assemblage of persons of both sexes devoid of principles and morals. The clerks at the fort then had to evaluate the fur bundles arriving, and the trappers were paid. Furs were then treated, pressed, and wrapped into larger bundles of deer hide for shipment to England. While this counting and reckoning was taking place, the voyageurs were essentially on a two-week vacation, and with the exception of some menial tasks to assist in the preparing of the furs, they were free to do as they chose around Fort Vancouver. U.S. Navy Commander Wilkes wrote that they were "...decked in gay feathers, ribbons, etc., full of conceit, and with a flaunting air of those who consider themselves the beau ideal of grace and beauty, full of frolic and fun, and seem to have nothing to do but attend to the decoration of their persons and seek pleasure." looking down with contempt upon those who are employed about the fort, whose somber cast of countenance and business employments form a strong contrast to these jovial fellows.
1: This trade was dependent on effective intercontinental transport and was wrought with protraction, danger, and loss. The passage from the Pacific Ocean to the Columbia was, of course, quite treacherous, just as it is today. 1829 saw the wreck of the William and Anne, whose crew most likely drowned and their cargoes were stolen by the Native Americans. Isabella in 1830 and four years later the schooner Vancouver met a similar fate on these perfidious waters. The supply ship, laden with European trade goods, traveled from England to the Columbia on a voyage that could take up to a full year. Botanist David Douglas's first trip from Britain aboard the William and Anne in 1824 to 1825 took eight and a half months to complete. A significant amount of time was needed to unload the cargoes of trade goods, supplies, and mail that were not only intended for Fort Vancouver, but the inland trading posts as well. The trip back was often equally as lengthy. In order to get specific goods at the Fort, say, Quinine for a severe malarial outbreak, Dr. McLaughlin would often have to wait up for two years from his initial letter to London until the next scheduled supply ship would arrive.
0: It is now time to turn your course north to the Counting House, where we will complete our story of Fort Vancouver.
2: Let's see action!
0: Counting House is where we have chosen to address the settlement of Americans in the Oregon Territory. Our selection of the telling of the story at this location is a bit tongue-in-cheek, for as you can see, the Park Service has chosen to showcase the arrival of British naval vessel Modeste at the Counting House. But the Modeste was only at Fort Vancouver for 18 months. It was a British military projection But it was also sheer fault. Nothing, absolutely nothing, could stop the trickle, the flow, and the eventual dam burst of Americans that was to come to the Oregon Territory and effectively push the British and the Hudson's Bay Company to present-day Victoria on Vancouver Island in Canada. By
1: 1832, there were eight settlers on the Willamette River, all of whom were former employees of the Hudson's Bay Company. By 1838, about 20 Americans had settled in the region. By 1841, the number of Americans in the Willamette Valley had grown to 65. This number shot up exponentially after that, with 140 in 42. 1843 found 875 Americans coming, 1,400 the following year, and almost 3,000 in 1845. The opening of the Barlow Road and the ability to now avoid the portage at Celilo Falls now changed the eventual destination for the settlers altogether. This gradually refocused the economic center of the region from Fort Vancouver to the Willamette Valley, specifically around the Oregon City area. The business was so brisk, in fact, that a HBC store was established at Willamette Falls. So many primary sources of these American settlers record the
0: kindness of Dr. John McLaughlin that it is impossible to recount them all in this presentation. Seeds, farming implements, food, medical care, boats, clothing, cattle, and even hogs were given by McLaughlin to the Americans, almost all on credit to folks that may have not been the most creditworthy, on extremely reasonable terms. Peter Burnett, an 1843 immigrant, sums these multiple sentiments up humbly and appropriately when he wrote that, had it not been for the kindness of this excellent man, many of us would have suffered greatly. An example of Dr. McLaughlin's charity can be found in the story of Samuel Parker, who came west with Dr. Marcus Whitman, of whom much has been written. In 1835, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions sent the plump, elderly, fussy Reverend Parker West. A clerk at the fort, George B. Roberts, noted that Parker was, quote, a very good old fanatic with some peculiarities such as licking his plate. Broke, penniless, McLaughlin hosted Parker, but Parker ultimately went on to the Sandwich Islands on the good doctor's dime, and then finally,
1: perhaps mercifully, returned back home. Eventually, in 1846, the 49th parallel was decided upon by the British and the Americans as the dividing line between the two countries. The Hudson's Bay Company was still allowed free navigation on the Columbia. This marked the end of Dr. John McLaughlin's tenure with the company, and he retired to Oregon City. His home there is also a National Park Service historic site and is absolutely worth a visit. In March of 1837, nearly a decade before Oregon received territorial status, Reverend Herbert Beaver was wrought with a great foretelling and insight when he penned that,
0: There was every appearance in my mind without too fancifully indulging in the spirit of prophecy, that these regions are ere long destined to become great in the annals of the world. And if so, the honorable company, who will not, I hope, leave the superstructure entirely to the exertions of others, are yearly gaining a firmer footing on this side of the continent to the evident detriment of the long-established traders. I fear the Americans will soon make a grand effort to oust us out of this place altogether as they claim to be proprietors of the soil to the 49th parallel of latitude, in this case They will act the part of the ungrateful snake in the fable. They could never have existed here a day without our assistance. Thank you for listening, Ass kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that our three-part series, When the Columbia Was British, featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORhistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh Citations are available on request check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kickass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. As always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. And be sure to join us on our Historic Halloween Show, October 31st, 2013 at 8.30pm at the Jack London Bar. Historians Joe Strucker, Finn John, and our own resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, will spin true tales of horror, murder and mayhem of the Pacific Northwest. There will be a costume contest with prizes, and three burlesque dancers to help us pass the evening. It's a kick-ass Halloween party that you won't want to miss. So come on down to the Jack London Bar on Halloween night, 2013. Just don't get too close to Mr. King Crispin. He's liable to put a secretion of your gland on a stick and drown you. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick-ass!